Section 89 of Mark Twain, A Biography. Volume 2. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mark Twain, A Biography. By Albert Bigelow Payne. Chapter 193. The Passing of Susie. It had been arranged that Katie Leary should bring Jean and Susie to England. It was expected that they would arrive soon, not later than the 12th, by which time the others would be established. The travelers proceeded immediately to London, and engaged for the summer a house in Guildford, modest quarters, for they were still economizing, though Mark Twain had reason to hope that with the money already earned and the profits of the book he would write of his travels, he could pay himself free. Altogether the trip had been prosperous. Now that it was behind him, his health and spirits had improved. The outlook was brighter. August 12th came, but it did not bring Katie and the children. A letter came instead. Clemens long afterward wrote, It explained that Susie was slightly ill, nothing of consequence, but we were disquieted and began to cable for later news. This was Friday. All day no answer, and the ship to leave Southampton next day at noon. Clara and her mother began packing to be ready in case the news should be bad. Finally came a cablegram saying, Wait for cablegram in the morning. This was not satisfactory, not reassuring. I cabled again, asking that the answer be sent to Southampton, for the day was now closing. I waited in the post-office that night till the doors were closed toward midnight, in the hope that good news might still come. But there was no message. We sat silent at home till one in the morning, waiting, waiting for we knew not what. Then we took the earlier morning train, and when we reached Southampton, the message was there. It said the recovery would be long, but certain. This was a great relief to me, but not to my wife. She was frightened. She and Clara went aboard the steamer at once and sailed for America to nurse Susie. I remained behind to search for another and larger house in Guilford. That was the 15th of August, 1896. Three days later, when my wife and Clara were about halfway across the ocean, I was standing in our dining room, thinking of nothing in particular, when a cablegram was put into my hand. It said, Susie was peacefully released today. Some of those who in later years wondered at Mark Twain's occasional attitude of pessimism and bitterness toward all creation, when his natural instinct lay all the other way, may find here some reasons in his logic of gloom. For years he and his had been fighting various impending disasters, in the end he had torn his family apart and set out on a weary pilgrimage to pay for long financial unwisdom, 
a heavy price, a penance in which all, without complaint, had joined. Now, just when it seemed about ended, when they were ready to unite and be happy once more, when he could hold up his head among his fellows, in this moment of supreme triumph had come the message that Susie's lovely and blameless life was ended. There are not many greater dramas in fiction or in history than this. The wonder is not that Mark Twain so often preached the doctrine of despair during his later life, but that he did not exemplify it, that he did not become a misanthrope, in fact. Mark Twain's life had contained other tragedies, but no other that equaled this one. This time none of the elements were lacking, not the smallest detail. The dead girl had been his heart's pride. It was a year since he had seen her face and now by this word he knew that he would never see it again. The blow had found him alone, absolutely alone, among strangers, those others halfway across the ocean drawing nearer and nearer to it, and he, with no way to warn them, to prepare them, to comfort them. Clemens sought no comfort for himself, just as nearly forty years before he had writhed in self-accusation for the death of his younger brother, and as later he held himself to blame for the death of his infant son, so now he crucified himself as the slayer of Susie. To Mrs. Clemens he poured himself out in a letter in which he charged himself categorically as being wholly and solely responsible for the tragedy, detailing step by step with fearful reality his mistakes and weaknesses which had led to their downfall, the separation from Susie, and this final incredible disaster. Only a human being, he said, could have done these things. Susie Clemens had died in the old Hartford home. She had been well for a time at Quarry Farm, well and happy. But during the summer of ninety-six she had become restless, nervous, and unlike herself in many ways. Her health seemed to be gradually failing and she renewed the old interest in mental science, always with the approval of her parents. Clemens had great faith in mind over matter, and Mrs. Clemens also believed that Susie's high-strung nature was especially calculated to receive benefit from a serene and confident mental attitude. From Bombay in January she wrote Mrs. Crane, "'I am very glad indeed that Susie has taken up mental science,' and I do hope it may do her as much good as she hopes. Last winter we were so very anxious to have her get hold of it, and even felt at one time that we must go to America on purpose to have her have the treatment. So it all seems very fortunate that it should have come about as it has this winter. Just how much or how little Susie was helped by this treatment cannot be known. Like Stevenson, she had a soul aflame in a body of gauze, a body to be guarded through the spirit. She worked continuously at her singing, and undoubtedly overdid herself. Early in the year she went over to Hartford to pay some good-bye visit, remaining most of the time in the home of Charles Dudley Warner, working hard at her singing. Her health did not improve, and when Katie Leary went to Hartford to arrange for their departure, she was startled at the change in her. "'Miss Susie, you are sick,' she said. "'You must have the doctor come.' Susie refused at first, but she grew worse and the doctor was sent for. 
he thought her case not very serious the result he said of overwork he prescribed some soothing remedies and advised that she be kept very quiet away from company and that she be taken to her own home which was but a step away it was then that the letter was written and the first cable sent to england mrs crane was summoned from elmira also charles langdon mr twichell was notified and came down from his summer place in the adirondacks susy did not improve she became rapidly worse and a few days later the doctor pronounced her ailment meningitis this was on the fifteenth of august that hot terrible august of eighteen ninety six susy's fever increased and she wandered through the burning rooms in delirium and pain then her sight left her an effect of the disease she lay down at last and once when katie leary was near her she put her hands on katie's face and said mama she did not speak after that but sank into unconsciousness and on the evening of tuesday august eighteenth the flame went out forever to twichell clemens wrote of it ah well susy died at home she had that privilege her dying eyes rested upon no thing that was strange to them but only upon things which they had known and loved always and which had made her young years glad and she had you and sue and katie and john and ellen this was happy fortune i am thankful that it was vouchsafed to her if she had died in another house well i think i could not have borne that to us our house was not unsentient matter it had a heart and a soul and eyes to see us with and approvals and solicitudes and deep sympathies it was of us and we were in its confidence and lived in its grace and in the peace of its benediction we never came home from an absence that its face did not light up and speak out its eloquent welcome and we could not enter it unmoved and could we now oh now in spirit we should enter it unshod a tugboat with dr rice mr twichell and other friends of the family went down the bay to meet the arriving vessel with mrs clemens and clara on board it was night when the ship arrived and they did not show themselves until morning then at first to clara there had been little need to formulate a message their presence there was enough and when a moment later clara returned to the stateroom her mother looked into her face and she also knew susy already had been taken to elmira and at half-past ten that night mrs clemens and clara arrived there by the through train the same train and in the same coach which they had taken one year and one month before on their journey westward around the world and again susy was there not 
waving her welcome in the glare of the lights as she had waved her farewell to us thirteen months before, but lying white and fair in her coffin in the house where she was born. They buried her with the Langdon relatives and the little brother, and ordered a headstone with some lines which they had found in Australia. Warm summer sun shine kindly here, warm southern wind blow softly here. Green sod above lie light, lie light, good night, dear heart, good night, good night. These lines at first were generally attributed to Clemens himself. When this was reported to him, he ordered the name of the Australian poet, Robert Richardson, cut beneath them. The word southern in the original read northern, as in Australia the warm wind is from the north. Richardson died in England in 1901. End of chapter 193 The Passing of Susie Read by John Greenman.